The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. All right, good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here, and I've really appreciated those uh, updates, especially in the summer, going through a book like Isaiah. It kind of keeps us threaded together week to week. So needed to say a word about that person in the background of the bungee cord. That isn't like a new form of like staff discipline. That wasn't like a staff member that was late for a meeting or anything. That was actually part of Spring Hill Camp that was here last week. And we had about 130 kids involved. It was a great, great week and just saw God do some amazing things. So if you drove by here last week, there were some pretty cool apparatuses they had, like the climbing wall and the bungee cord and a big water slide back here. So anyway, and any of you parents that helped put that on, helped with meals for kids and desserts and hosting the campers that were with us, just very grateful for that. But God did, did good things last week. Also, just an update from our China team. Uh, they've had the privilege of God just opened up the door for them with 1,500 Chinese students at the university in Wuhan to get to uh, enact for them Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, the lost coin, the lost sheep. And then out of that group, about 150 have circled back for more in-depth study. And so just very grateful for doors that God is opening up for our team uh, there in China as well. So um, also a word out to West High Soccer. We've got three players here and a coach that goes here. And they, man, they were just this close to repeating as state champions. So they just had a great season and a great weekend. Just imagine playing soccer in that heat yesterday, but just they battled, battled well. So it was about this time last week that the word was starting to just get out about Muhammad Ali and his, his death, and it was just all over the media this week and all of that. And so I didn't remember much. I don't remember much about Ali. The biggest thing I remember is that he's maybe credited sometimes as being the first athlete that truly smack talked, like, and just would just talk and taunt and all that. So I always thought it was funny. I remember this story about him that he was on an airplane once flying, and the stewardess was just going up and down the aisle to make sure everybody had their seatbelts on. And she said to Muhammad Ali, uh, Mr. Ali, you need to get your seatbelt on. We're ready to take off. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And then she had the gall to say, well, Superman don't need no airplane. You better put that seatbelt on, <laughs> Mr. Ali. So I always liked that. But So obviously this week when they told his biography and all that, there was a life-changing event that happened I knew nothing about. But when Ali was 12 years old, he got a brand new bike. He lived in Louisville. And somebody stole that bike. And it just made him so mad. And somebody told him, hey, there's a police officer in that building down in the basement. Go, go tell him. And so I guess even as a 12-year-old, um, at that time, Cassius Clay went down and was talking to the officer like, man, if I catch whoever did that, I'm going to do this to him. I'm going to do this. And, and um, it just happened that officer was running a boxing club down there. And he's saying like, boy, if you're going to be talking that big, you better make sure you better be able to back back that up. So what if I train you here and just give you some lessons in boxing? And then the rest is, is history. But I just, you love hearing moments like that in a person's life that just catapults them into something bigger than they would have ever imagined. And so we've been this summer studying the book of Isaiah. And there was one of those moments in Isaiah's life that, that I think has, has far exceeded even becoming a world heavyweight champion. Just what Isaiah gleaned from this experience, and if you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We're eventually going to be in Isaiah 58, but I want us to, to look again at Isaiah 6. This was the formative moment in Isaiah's life. And I'm going to read 
uh, just verses one to eight for you. Some of the verses will be on the screen. Um, but this was Isaiah's life-changing encounter with, with the, with, we, we've talked about this in the weeks before. This was the pre-incarnate Jesus. This was Jesus 700 years before he came to earth as a baby, all right? So Isaiah 6, 1 says, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says that I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go out for us? And then Isaiah says, And then I said, Here I am, send me. What, what Isaiah had right there is the ultimate worship experience. And we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 58, where God is speaking through Isaiah, saying, Isaiah, teach my people what true worship is. And you just have to know that this was a delight for Isaiah because of the true worship experience he had, where he saw Jesus high and lifted up. He saw Jesus in his holiness and in his greatness. He had that immediate response of, woe is me, I do not belong here, I am not a holy man, I have unclean lips, I'm from a people of unclean lips. And yet in that same experience to experience the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, to have his sins atoned for, and then even beyond that, when God says, who's going to go for me? Who is going to go and proclaim what you have just experienced, Isaiah? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. What an amazing experience. So when God in Isaiah 58 says, Isaiah, teach my people how I want them to worship, you're right in Isaiah's sweet spot. You see this throughout Isaiah. There are numerous times he addresses God's people about how they worship. And so uh, this morning, this is a great passage for, for us to look at as well. So let me pray that God would teach us. And uh, before I do as well, I just kind of want to pray kind of in a uh, pastoral way as a shepherd here of our, of our church. Um, Sunday mornings are a hard time to catch news that's breaking. Um, but I've been following the last couple hours that our country has gone through another act of, of terrorism, that in Orlando, the numbers are now up to 50 people um, have been killed in a nightclub shooting, and another 50 are wounded. Um, and it appears that this is another act of uh, radical Islamic terrorism, and this time targeting the gay community. And so if you have not heard about this yet, you will. This is... Um, latest I just read is maybe the biggest since 9-11 as far as casualties. And so I just want to lead us in prayer. Uh, and if there is ever a day and age in our country where our country needs authentic worshipers, 
of God. It's, it's in these days, all right? So let me pray. Pray for us as a church and pray for that tragedy. God, right now, um, I just can't even imagine the grief and the anguish and the fear uh, that's going on in Orlando and with many of these families and with friends and uh, just the intense grief and sorrow that one more time our country will be going through. Father, I pray for your people in the immediate Orlando area to respond with truth and grace, to respond with care, to meet needs, to put your grace and your love on display. And God, may we as a church just be the kind of church you long for us to be. God, this morning when you're speaking to us about what true worship looks like, God, you are going to address so many things in our hearts Uh, God, I thank you that as I've read this chapter, I see so many evidences in this place of you at work, but I also see in my own life ways that you are raising the bar and saying, Doug, what about this? Could you do this? Are you truly worshiping me? So God, speak to us because we desperately live in a day that needs to see true followers, true worshipers of God. And it's in your great name we pray. Amen. All right, so... Isaiah chapter 58, verse 1, God uh, speaking to Isaiah uh, says this. He says, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. God wants their attention. This is an important topic to God. Verse 2, he says about these people, yet they seek me daily and they delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you don't see it, God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So interesting to note that the people God is addressing here, we would consider faithful worshipers. There are several phrases here. They seek God daily. They delight to know his ways. Uh, they, they are fasting. They delight to draw near to God. Like in our context, it's not like God's going to the golf courses on Sunday morning and saying, hey, you ought to be in church. Like he's not talking to that crowd. He's talking to the, you know, the faithful religious folks that are doing the rituals and the, the processes and they're doing all the right things on the outside. These are the ones that God is, is addressing. Notice he used the word as if. You know, it's, it's as if they are doing righteous things, that there's something amiss here, that God is able to look past what's going on on the outside and get right at the heart of the matter. And so the people are noticing, too. They're saying, God, why aren't you even noticing? Like, we're, we're even fasting, God, and we don't sense that you're hearing us. We don't sense your presence with us. What's going on? What's going wrong? And so God's going to address two things that he sees that's going on. This is good for us. to to look into, God, are we truly worshiping you the way that you long for us to? So two things he said to them. First, um, he says this, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. So they're coming into God's presence. They're doing all the right things, but they're doing it for themselves, and they're not really doing it for God. And this is tough. Like, sometimes we can get so in a routine 
And we can just kind of have our religious checklist. Okay, I do this, I pray, I read, I write a check, I, you know, whatever I serve here, I teach a Sunday school class. We can just kind of skim along and not really get beneath the surface about why are we doing those things. And what God is exposing here is that these people at this time were doing those things for their own reasons. Sometimes maybe we worship God because we want to get him on our side. Like, okay, God, I really want my business to go well this year. God, I really want you to bless my kids and my family this year. God, I, oh, I just hope I can stay healthy. So I'll, I'll do these things to kind of keep the big man on my side, right? Or, or just kind of keep him happy or just, but really we're not there for him. We're not really engaging with who he is and what he's calling us to do. And I think directly related to that is the second thing that he mentioned to them. He says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasures and you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Like this doesn't make any sense. If we were in the presence of God, Jesus said the greatest singular commandment is to love God with your heart, soul, and mind, and then to love your neighbors yourself. Like those two acts are linked as one expression to God. So you can't go, God says, you can't come worship me. And then just, he even says, in the day of your fast, like even as you're leaving the fast, start oppressing the poor in your life or start treating people bad. I mean, sometimes we laugh at this. Like sometimes when you've got young kids and you're trying to get to church and it's a Sunday morning and everybody's kind of pecking at each other and fighting and barking. And then you walk in these doors and everybody's like, hey, you know, we got church mode going on. And then as soon as we walk out of here and get back in the car, it's like game on again. Like I don't know how many times learning, I've said, guys, we just worship God. And then this is, this is what we do. But, you know, on a grander scale, this is exactly the thing that was going on with God's people. I think he addresses a couple things specifically uh, throughout this text. But one is the concept of having much and not sharing it with those in needs, of, a, of those in need, even oppressing those close to us, oppressing in this context people that were working for them on the very day of the fast. So they're coming out and they're telling everybody, hey, I just worship God. And then, but you look and they're treating people bad and they're withholding and they're being greedy. And God says, I want no part of that. In fact, that's his, his end statement there is fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. God says, if you're going to worship like that, I don't want to be there. I'm not even going to listen to you. I'm not going to hear a thing. I'm not going to notice. It's not what I'm about. That is not my worship. This is a theme, again, you see throughout Isaiah. One time he said even bolder in Isaiah 1.15, and the context there was how his people were oppressing, again, the poor and overlooking the needs of the widow. And he said this, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. And even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. So again, just what a pointless exercise for us to go through worship, and God's conclusion is, I'm not gonna be there. You guys can all show up for worship, I'm not going to be there. And the sad thing is, I wonder how long it would take for those people to notice that God wasn't even there. But again, it's, again we don't want to look back and just go, oh, yeah, those stupid people, they didn't know what they were doing, they were worshiping God poorly. I think this is a good wake-up call for us today. Why do we worship God, and how do we authentically worship God? And so God goes on in verse 6, and he, he shares with us, okay, this this is how I want you to worship me. Verse six, he says, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, 
to undo the straps of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Let me take a little, like a minute or two tangent here and let's talk about fasting because it seems in and out of this passage we talk about worship and fasting. Um, in in uh, Jesus' day, Jesus assumed that his followers would fast. In Matthew 6, he talked about when you pray, then he talked about when you give, and then he talked about when you fast. Uh, in the Hebrew culture, and even in Isaiah's day, fasting was more prevalent than, than I'm aware of it being today. In fact, in my own life, until about the last six months, um, fasting had been something I reserved maybe for big decisions or when there's a big crisis or coming together with other families on behalf of somebody in crisis. But the whole concept of a fast being a regular part um, of my life and my walk with God became a new concept to me earlier this year when I ran into three different people that were involved and have been involved in long fasts. Um, if you were here the weekend that Dr. Christopher Yuan spoke and his parents came, you heard his mom's powerful story of how she prayed and fasted for her son while he was in prison um, and while he was turning his back and running from God, how she fasted for an extended period of time, and then she fasted weekly for seven years for her son to come back. It was a powerful story. It was right before that, one of our global workers who had been single for many years married a man, and uh, we got to talk, and I heard from him that there were two times in his life that he fasted for 40 days. It's just like, just pummeled him with questions. How did you do that? Like, why did you do that? What was that like? In another case where another global worker was in our home and just not eating that day. It's like, what's up? You don't like my food? You don't like our... And just finally just said, well, I'm, I'm fasting. And so what, what fasting usually is, it's usually a, a withdrawal from food for, again, a meal, a day, or a few days, or 40 days, in some of these folks' case. And it's really meant to discipline ourselves and to remind our bodies and our souls that we are utterly dependent on God, that God is the one that meets our needs. That, that, and, and we can be so, uh, we can forget that. We can forget how desperately we need God. And so um, through these examples, that's something that, over the, again, last six months or so, God has been incorporating back into my life and this has been um, a good expression, again, of, uh, of dependence on God and reminding myself. And there are some targets I'm praying for, but I'm also just doing it generally to just remind me of this is the posture that God is looking for from us, that day by day we rely on him, that he is our provider, that he is our strength. The heart of true fasting, then, is seeking God. It's a deep expression of dependence on God. And so God says, here's... Here's the true fasting that I want. The core essence of worship is that I want you to just absolutely depend on me. So let's read that verse again. God says, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? So two things here. One is, is that I think authentic uh, worship is when we seek radical rescue for ourselves and for people around us. You see several phrases there. Loose the bonds. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. I think first the look is internal. That as we come and worship God, just like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, when you see how great God is, when you see how holy he is, 
And when you measure yourself up against that, I think God in his grace just shows us our brokenness. He shows us our sin. He shows us when we're rebelling against him. And then we also, just like Isaiah, then are reminded of God's mercy and his grace, that he still loves us, that he forgives us, that he offers to cover our sins, that he offers to include us with him to be proclaimers of his deliverance and his grace and mercy. And so um, true authentic worship involves first, again, not me just flying in and saying, hey, God, you're awesome, you know, and, and, or just quickly coming, God, I need this, I need this from you, I want this from you. But it's coming to that place where we square up and we just realize who he is and we respond appropriately to that. We respond with humility. We respond with dependence. We respond with brokenness. And then we receive his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness through Jesus Christ and through the gospel. And then when we leave that experience, the way we engage with people is radically different. That it's, that I've made a bigger deal about my sin than the sin of people around me. I've been made aware of how great God is, of where I have not measured up. I've been made aware of his grace and kindness and compassion and mercy on me so that when I leave that time then, when I'm again engaging then with the people in my life, there ought to be something radically different if I've truly worshiped God. The way I, the way I see and enter into other people's um, you know, bondages, uh, being trapped in sin, that I move in with mercy and grace in there, not with judgment and not looking down. Or even in the case of those who don't have what I have, that I don't just, just callously look past the needs of the poor around me, but there's been a work in my heart that because God has been so gracious and generous with me, that God has met my deepest needs, how could I not move in toward the needs of people around me? God says, when I start seeing that response from my people, that's how I can tell that my people have truly been in my presence. My people have truly worshiped me. We've got to be really careful here because with our tendency to do things to please God, we could just add being kind to the poor or being generous to our list of rituals. It could be, well, I pray and I read my Bible and I go to church and I write a check and I, and I serve and I do all this. And again, this is not done to earn God's favor. This is not done to do something good to God so that he'll pay me back. But this is merely done because you are reflecting what God has done for you. When you worship him, when you understand the gospel, when you understand what Jesus has done for you, then this is the way you truly express that. That worship is what happens when we gather, but then worship is what happens when you leave and when you interact throughout the week. The people see us walking in dependence on God. People see us being humble, being more concerned about our sin than theirs. People see us moving in graciously and compassionately. People see us serving and caring for the poor that are around us. That's what God is looking for. That is true worship. And so the um, promise God gives uh, is phenomenal. In fact, I, I want you to wake up from kind of your mid-sermon uh, nap a little bit here and uh, stand up, and I want you to read these verses with me. It's Isaiah 58, verses 8 to 11, and you're going to just see God just lavish promise on promise for us when we authentically worship him, okay? So Isaiah 58, verse 8, let's read it together. <clears throat> then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. 
Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. It's awesome. Grab a seat. Let's break those down a little bit. These are some great promises. Like this is how God, remember originally God says, I'm not going to show up in your worship. I'm not going to show up in your life if you're worshiping me for the wrong reasons. And if you're not treating the people right, I don't want to be a part of that worship. But look, the flip side is just abundantly powerful. What God promises to do for us. There were three categories there. I would say first is that God makes his presence known in us and then through us in us and through us. And one summary there would be the word light, that where there was darkness, there will now be light. Where there was gloom, so many times, guys, when we live selfishly, when we think only of ourselves, when we hoard what we have, those can be some of the darkest and some of the gloomiest days that we have. But when we see the greatness and the grace of God and experience his forgiveness, uh, and, and, and then experience his presence with us, that we have hope in our lives. There's now light where there was darkness and gloom. Uh, there is hope. Uh, there is uh, our chance then to put God on display. We can be light in darkness. So not only in our own lives is there light, but now God may lead you into places where there is darkness, where there is gloom, where there is hurt, and you can bring the light that you have found through Christ. So that image of light there was the image as well of life, um, that our recovery would speedily spring forth. Literally, the Hebrew word for recovery uh, meant wholeness, that you will be restored, you will be whole. And so this had a physical nuance to it. It also had a spiritual nuance to you, that there would be seasons of spiritual growth, that you would become alive, that you would become dynamic again, that there would be seasons of change and in just clear maturity in your life as you continue to authentically worship God. I love the phrase there too, that you are a watered garden. I, I have had my ups and downs as a gardener. This year is going awesome, thanks to a fence that works and the rabbits have stayed away and we're just getting good rain. Like it's, I'm actually looking like a good gardener this year, but, but that picture of our lives being a well-watered garden, that people just see the growth, they see the fruit, and what I love from it is it doesn't stop there, but you also become a spring. A spring of water flows out. Again, providing spiritual life to those around you. I love that as being the authentic sign that God is alive in us. Is not only is there growth in us, but that you look and the people around you are growing as well. Either the people just in your normal path of relationship, your family, your coworkers, but even places that God calls you to go that there will be well-watered gardens now being springs of water for those around you. What an amazing picture of what God can do through us. And the last one, the last series of images seem to just 
underscore to us that God is with us, that God loves us, that we are loved by him. The phrase is like this, that he will defend you, he will protect you, um, he will be your rear guard. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. That means he's got your back, and it's not just some anybody. This is the glory of God has your back. Nothing can sneak up on you. Nothing can attack you. That he has you. He is protecting you. He is comforting you. When you call on him, he answers. And he says, here I am. And that was a phrase used of a servant. Like, here I am. What do you need? This is the almighty God saying that, being that close and that intimate with you, that when you are truly worshiping him, he shows up in your moment of need. And he's able to meet every single need that you have. And so what that does for us then is it catapults us out to no longer live for ourselves, but to truly put his life and his love on display. And Isaiah would say, and what God is saying to Isaiah is where all that traces back is to an authentic worship experience of God, seeing his greatness, seeing his holiness, us compared to that, just seeing our brokenness and our sin, but on top of that, seeing the mercy, the grace, the kindness of God that he has shown to us through Jesus Christ. And so it's really only the gospel that's going to transform us into being those kind of worshipers. It doesn't work, for example, this morning to say, we all should care for the poor more, you know, and to just throw out some statistics of how much we have and how little they do. That can be powerful, but guilt or shame is not a lasting motivator. The most lasting motivator is going to be if we are true, authentic worshipers, if we truly reflect on, I would say daily, the realities of the cross, the realities of the gospel, of who God is and of who we are in comparison and what Jesus did for us. That when we truly understand that, then we move out of those moments of worship with compassion, with kindness, with impact, with influence in the people around us. And I praise God for a church. Again, we're not perfect. There are many more things we could be doing. But as I look around, as I look at the various ministries, I look at the different ways you guys are teaming together to reach parts of the world, to reach parts of our city, to reach your own community, through your community groups. Guys, there are amazing evidences of authentic worship in this place. And and I'm excited this morning that God is maybe even calling us to fresh spots and fresh places as we truly live out what he's calling us to do in Isaiah 58. So let me um, ask you to close in prayer, and I just want to read uh, a verse over you and then just, just pray over us too. The verse is this, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. So Jesus, what's amazing is when Isaiah saw you seated on the throne, high and lifted up, 700 years before you came to this earth in the form of a baby, we saw, we get a chance for Isaiah to see where you were and how you were worshipped, and yet you were, you were willing to humble yourself and come and be born to two peasants and to be placed in a feeding trough when you were born. That eight days later, Jesus, when you were dedicated, all your mom and dad had to pay for that as an offering were two pigeons. They were so poor. Jesus, as you grew older, you told us you had no place to lay your head. You were homeless. We know that the last meal, Jesus, you had with your followers was in a borrowed room. 
We know that when you were put on trial, Jesus, you were abused, there was injustice, you did nothing wrong, and you were condemned to die as a sinful criminal. And Jesus, yet you rose again from the dead, you broke the power of sin and darkness, and now you live, uh, you are alive in heaven to give life to those who truly respond to you, who truly see you in your greatness and goodness, who are truly aware of their sin and their need and their brokenness. And you are quick to move toward us, to forgive us, and to call us on your team, to let us, to empower us, to go and be people, men and women who can bring light to dark places. God, would you continue to do that through your church? Would you continue to do that through your people as we focus and deeply understand what you've done for us on the cross? May we truly worship you in ways that you want us to. In your great name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.